The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Marsha Madsen. Marsha is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP, uh, focusing on government contracts. Uh, Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, it's been a while since you've been on the show, um, so there's a lot to catch up on. And in particular, um, you know, with some of the things that are going on in the market right now, in particular, the uh, the the OTAs, other transaction, is it transactions or transaction? Other transaction authority. Yeah, other transaction authority. Um is playing a bigger and bigger role with regard to this particular DOD procurement. Um, there's been a lot going on there, a lot of focus on it, what it's being used for, you know, and the authorities and flexibilities around it. Um, so I'd like just to get your thoughts. First of all, if you could walk through really what are OTAs, uh, let's do an OTA 101 for folks <laughs> okay. out there, okay? Okay. Well, OTAs, other transactions, have actually been around for a long time. They were used um, actually back in the 50s by NASA. Um, there's been statutory authority for them in, in different ways, uh, like the Space Act. But most recently, um, in 2016, the OTA authority for DOD was made permanent. And um, an OTA is really nothing more than a, than a contract, and I know people will... <clears throat> think that's an interesting comment in and of itself, but it is a contract with the United States. It's just a different kind of contract. It's not a traditional procurement contract. It's other authority for acquisition of um, services or products. So and it's, so it's essentially outside the FAR? It's outside the FAR. It's outside the um, Title 10. It's outside Title 41, um, although actually the authority is in Title 10, but it's outside the procurement provisions. Right. So... So, so what do these things look like? Or, I mean, I mean, is it? I mean, I know DOD's issued some general guidance on them. Um, what are you seeing these agreements sort of look like? So, DOD's issued some guidance, and, and we're going to talk in a minute about it. But there are statutory requirements for OTAs. There are uh, in the in Title Ten of, of the U.S. Code twenty three seventy one B, as it was amended in two thousand sixteen. So, there are certain things they have to do, but they're relatively limited. So, if you Think of the agreement itself. It's not going to look like a FAR contract. It's basically going to look like a commercial contract. The parties can put in that agreement what they want. The process is really around how you get into the agreement. So the, we see agreements that have all commercial clauses. <clears throat> We've seen agreements that are three or four pages um, that the commercial entity that is interested in doing the prototype uh, brings in their standard commercial terms. They bring in their standard IP license. Um, as long as the government is um, getting, the government agency involved is getting um, what they think they're getting, you know, they describe the work, they describe the process, and they enter into an agreement. So they can be, they can be all over the map. They can assume all kinds of shapes and sizes. We've seen them, as I said, be very short. 
um, we've also seen them look very far-like. Right, some just taking far clauses. It's, and it's, it's really up to the buyer, and I think probably this is one of the weak spots of the, of the processes. There's not enough guidance. I think um, sometimes agency personnel who are used to doing FAR contracts and who do not have experience with commercial contracts will look at this and say, um, oops, you know, I'm not very comfortable here. Uh, what do I do about my IP rights? What do I do about, um, can I have a changes clause? Uh, can I terminate this for convenience? Um, what if I want to get some information on costs? So some of the agreements we see look a lot more like a FAR contract. Um, obviously, there there are statutory provisions like civil rights provisions that apply. But in terms of the business terms, right. um, sometimes they look a lot more like a FAR contract. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're very, very slim. And so, and it's interesting. I'm just you know putting my lawyer's hat back on. You know, as much as I hate to do that. <laughs> um, and you mentioned lots of times. Sometimes they have you know the commercial IP terms or whatever from. Uh, the company, they, do the, in that context, they still have to address things like choice of law, don't they? Like, can you choose? I mean, it's federal contract law, or is it, you know, the state law that you know that they choose, or is? And then there's issues around anti deficiency act or indemnification. That's what I'm always thinking about. I remember back in the day not being able to agree to either one of those. Um, terms in a you know from a commercial license. Yeah, I haven't seen indemnification come up, but I've seen a lot of OTs where the the company provides its standard end user license agreement, for example, for software, and that's what goes in. That's what goes in the OT. So it it may not address federal terms. Probably doesn't. Um, it it prob- the ones I've seen actually don't have a choice of law provision in them. Okay. They just don't put that in there um, unless it's in there by accident. Um, so it's, it's very much commercial, they're very much commercial looking and I, that the guidance, guidance, I think for folks who are doing this in terms of what the interests of the government are in these arrangements would be very helpful. Um, I'll give you an example of a place where I think this is, this is causing difficulties for commercial companies and for actually the very... Um, kinds of innovative technology companies that the OT uh, mechanism is intended to attract, and it's the IP regime. So you can have a company, let's just say a software supplier, that's that's commercial, that's innovative, that um, may be interested in an OT and participate in an OT, and they hand in their commercial license, goes in the deal, it's done. it could even be with the same agency. They're also a supplier on a traditional government contract, right? Uh, even with the same agency. And increasingly, those contracts are requiring suppliers to turn over um, data rights, rights in their software. Um, so you, we've seen companies who, who literally, it's head spinning. You know, they come to us and they said, look, we signed this. They took our commercial license. And now over here... We're being asked, and they're not a prime, they're a supplier. Yeah. We're being asked to turn over all these rights. You know, who's in charge, right? What's right. going on? Right, like two different regimes. Two di- yeah, that way, I mean. And it's the same folks, and it's, it's, it's folks, that, it's kind of entities, at least if you listen to the public pronouncements about the use of OTs, it's the kind of entities that the government's trying to attract to, through this mechanism 
And I think some folks are not realizing that those kind of commercial technology suppliers are their suppliers, right? So they're, right. They're, they're working in different parts of the market, and they're working in some cases for on matters for you know traditional government contractors where they're getting the huge push down of all of the the far or the depending yeah, on the, the flow downs yeah. depending on the matter the defars yeah. uh, flow downns and they're under a lot of pressure to turn over rights and so you know from their perspective it looks like the government doesn't know what they're doing right well also too when you stop to think about it, the flip side of that is like well if you agree to uh, you know the flow downs why are you using why are we why government why am I accepting your commercial terms and conditions for the OTA? I mean it works both ways, right? Right, right. It's two different sides of the <laughs> yes. line and, and you know, people not talking to each other. But yeah. if you think about it from the perspective of a commercial technology supplier, you know, they're really scratching their heads going, you know, do these right. people know what they're doing, frankly? Yeah. So you mentioned the term prototype in the context of OTAs. what is that? Well, the con- it's not really defined in the statute. Um, the concept, if you were to look at something like DOD's technical maturity guidelines, for example, or engine top typical engineering use of the term, is you know it's it's a a, a pre-production uh, you know sort of demonstration of a capability. Of capability and it's typically hardware, but it's used here brought more broadly than that. It could be a, a business practice or whatever. But it's 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 a it's think of it as a demonstration, right. and um, for potential advancement to a you know a more robust application or production a follow on follow on of right. some sort, right? right? Um, and it could be if it's an if it's an item, it could be a production. If it's a process, it could be, you know, in, enhancing it or enlarging it to use it. So the, the current DOD statute um, provides for processes or or products. Right. And it's for anything to support the Department yeah, the, of Defense? The, 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 it's, the way they've it's really the it? way that The way that the statute talks about it is that it's um, the authority is to, for a prototype project that's, and I'm going to quote here, directly relevant to enhancing the mission effectiveness of military personnel and the supporting platform systems, components, or materials proposed to be acquired by the Department of Defense. So it's a very broad, broad definition. Yeah. But if you think about it in terms of size and scope, it's a sort of maybe first of a kind, a demonstration. Um, and it potentially could be of something that's in use in the commercial sector that's not in use in, in the government no. sector, although there's a there's kind of a pinch point there as well. Right. Well, Marsha, we're already up on the break. My guest today is Marsha Madsen. She's a partner at Mayor Brown, and we're talking about all things government contracts or government OTAs, let's say. Um, and when we come back, we'll continue some, uh, continue our discussion of OTAs and talk a little bit about the process and just a little bit about the recent um, interesting GAO decision involving OTAs. Uh, you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Marsha Madsen. She is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. And um, Marsha, when we took the break, we were talking about OTAs. And we're going to continue that discussion a little bit. And, um, you know, I know there's been some you know, recent examination of them, let's say, um, in the context of the statute and the transaction. I just want to you know, get your thoughts on, you know, some of the key fee- key aspects of the process that people need to think about. 
Okay. Well, I think, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of things contractors who are, or companies, I guess, since we, maybe we don't want to call them contractors. I don't know. No, I guess not because it's an OTA, <laughs> it's right? It's an OTA, OTAers. <laughs> um, Need to think about, and I think the recent GAO decision, and um, as you probably know, Roger, we handled that matter, so yes, you um, did. we can talk about mm-hmm. it. But I think, think it's really important for contractors to understand what's permissible and what's not permissible. And frankly, as we just discussed, to also think about what kinds of terms and conditions they're willing to accept. And I also think it's important for them to consider sort of down-the-road risks and exposure. So I'm going to try and talk about some of those things. I mean, OTAs are a really important tool. They're intended to produce innovation. They're intended to attract, you know, companies that don't don't otherwise want to touch this market. Although, as I mentioned a minute ago, the IT confusion may convince them they don't want to do that anyway. Right. IP confusion. Yes, yes. Um, But they're... So they're an important tool when they're used properly and as intended, but they're not a replacement for procurement contracts, and they're not for every acquisition that the government wants to make. I saw an article earlier this week. Um, it's an interview by retired General Hawk Carlisle, and I associate myself with these comments, um, that they are not for every acquisition. They are, they are not for every buy the government wants to make. But they're in the, in the right circumstance and targeted. They can be helpful. So... You know, really, that's kind of what the GAO decision talked about, um, and why is it important? It gives some milestones to what the law requires and what was missed here. So, in understanding, you know, what's what's permissible, it's important to focus on the basics. You know, what did GAO do? They focused on the basics. They said, "What does the statute say?" And they. They really simply just looked at whether the government, in this case, this was an OTA that was done through DIUX out in Mountain View, California, and the Army Contracting Command, which is the the implementer uh, at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, followed the statute. There aren't a huge number of requirements in the statute, but there are some. That's why it's an OTA, right? That's why it's an OTA. uh, Some basic, just some... (laughs) Basic things you got to do. Right? Yeah, but there are requirements that are important in the statute, and GAO found that certain requirements just weren't met. And there's been a lot of discussion, and I guess um, I might be unpopular for using this word, some hysteria, I think, about, about OTAs. And I think it comes from a perception that um, an OTA is not a procurement contract, so maybe a perception that there's no rules, nobody's going to look at this, um, do what you want, and that percept, that's clearly inconsistent with the statute. That's not what the statute says, but I think, I don't know if you want to call it urban legend, but I think there's, sure. a, there's been a perception out there that it, it, that kind of doesn't matter, so do whatever kind of agreement you want, use whatever kind of process you want. So in, here, in this case, GAO said, look, there are certain statutory requirements that are important, and one of the first things GAO said is we, GAO, can actually consider whether the OTA was used appropriately. Uh, GAO was very clear that they're not going to get involved in a protest over who should have won or whether it was properly evaluated, but they were very clear that um, that they can determine whether it was should have been a procurement contract or an OTA and whether the statutory authority was used appropriately. And GAO had, had taken this position in other cases, one as early as 2008, Yes. And one again in 2016. So nobody should have been surprised that GAO was willing to look at this narrow, narrow issue. And then the second thing that GAO concluded was that 
The protester, in this case Oracle, could bring the protest because the government failed to follow the statute. And one of the first things GAO said is it looked into whether the respondents to the DIUX um, area of interest, and maybe I should take a second and talk about how DIUX does this. So the DIUXs use a, um, an approach where they have a standard set of terms and conditions that they've posted, which is called a commercial solutions opening. Mm-hmm. And yep. then as um, opportunities are developed, they issue a, a, a more, I hate to hesitate to use the word specific because that was one of the problems here. It wasn't very specific. But they put a, an area of interest or an AOI out that says, you know, come and talk to us about this topic. In this case, you know, it was a paragraph of various things that some people would consider agile systems development. So they they put the AOI out, and then they also have this standards term set, the CSO. In this case, um, GAO said you didn't follow the statute because you didn't tell the respondents to the DIUX AOI that you... Um, DIUX and the Army intended to actually award a production OTA. And, of course, if you remember the number of the production OTA that was awarded, it was a little eye-popping at $950 yeah. million. Yes, so, for the entire department to right. write scope. Yep. Right. So, But GAO said, look, the, uh, you didn't tell people in the, in the AOI that was issued that a production OTA was contemplated. And the CSO, the standing set of terms, says has language in it that says uh, we might do a production OTA, uh, but the the document that advised people if you know we're interested in agile systems development didn't say we're going to do a production OTA. So GAO said, look, you know, you didn't tell people you were going to do that, so you didn't follow the statutory requirement, and so this party who did not respond to it because they didn't know you were going to award a $950 million production OTA, is an interested party uh, to challenge whether this was an appropriate use of the authority. Um, so, Marcia, just yeah. let me, you know, it seems to me like, I, and I... It's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, but, it's, but it's fun. To me, these basic statutory requirements are what make, and they're keys to successful, I don't know how else to say it, successful execution. I mean, in the context of ensuring people know what they're getting into, that everybody who's involved, and it, and for measurement purposes too, as well, down the road, like how did it perform? Did it, you know, it seems to me like that's a basic requirement that leads to sounder OTA execution, and that's why it was put in the statute. Is that fair no, to say? No, that makes, that makes sense. I think, you know, it, anyone would say, I think, that, you know, if, if you're trying to get people to respond to a solicitation of one sort or another, which is what an AOI is, that you need to tell them enough about what you're looking for that um, they can respond. And even if what you're looking for is, you know, come tell me your good ideas about X, Y, and Z, you still need to tell them what what areas you're looking for good ideas in and, and, you know, where this is headed. And so, you know, the, the requirement is that you, you tell them, look, we're going to do a prototype, and then when the prototype is done in this area, our intention is probably to award a production OTA, and that was not, that was not done right. here. So, uh, you know, uh, in, 
if you read the opinion, there's some discussion in the opinion about how broad the AOI was here, covered a number of different topics, including some things that the, that the agency who was interested in this particular matter, U.S. Transcom, actually wasn't interested in, such as, you know, um, on-premises cloud computing, right? They were actually weren't interested in on-premises. So it was a very broad yes. AOI. And without some more guidance, it just wasn't possible for, you know, someone to pick it up and say, okay, I, I might want right. to respond the, you know, to I that. Might, and, I, and, and given the potential down the road, I'm going to sink some good right, resources right. into G- it. Given right? the fact that it's $950 million or right. whatever, potentially there's going to be a big follow-on, um, you know, I should go talk to those people, right? right. And that's the go- I mean, on the flip side of it, the government's not maximizing its potential to get the best solution it wants when it fails to communicate that, right? I mean, that's that's what we just discussed, that people see the opportunity and they invest commensurate to what they're what they're seeing as that they could that's at the end of the day is the business opportunity and if it's not communicated clearly, you're not, you know, maximizing the potential for the solution, you know, to get the solution that really meets your needs. Right. You're not, you're not in that situation. You haven't really let the community, the business community know what you're interested in enough so that you get the breadth of response that would bring in the innovation that you're looking for, right? Yeah. And this one was particularly broad. It had all kinds of things in it that didn't relate to what ultimately was done. Right. In fact, you know, in a very small way, it would only relate to what was done. So GAO said, look, it, it, it's fair for you to complain because who knew that you were going to mm-hmm. do this and you were going to do it at $950 million. Right. Um, the other th- one of the other things that GAO— Marsha, you know what? We're up on the break. Okay. When you can hold that thought okay. uh, to come back and we'll finish up on the case. And then I also want to give you a chance to talk about, you know, the Civil False Claims Act and how— and we can talk about that more generally, but also how does it relate to OTAs? I think it's an inter- interesting twist. Today, my guest is Marsha Matson. She's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Marsha Matson from Mayor Brown LLP. And we're talking, well, we've spent a lot of time on OTAs, and I know we're going to finish up in this segment, uh, but uh, I know you had a couple of the thoughts on um, the scope and, you know, some of the background with regard to the to the uh, OTA that was involved in that protest. Oh, okay. So I, I think when we quit, I was just going to mention that the um, AOI was very broad, and it's quoted in the decision, and we don't have time to quote it because it's long, but... Um, basically, and it's an amalgamation of requirements if you look at the decision from several different government buyers. And um, it talks about cloud things, and this ended up being a cloud migration contract but or cloud migration OT. But then it also has some language in it that, that GAO found to be of concern, which was it talks about ideal solutions, uh, uses the phrase ideal solutions will consist of other things probably that were brought by, you know, the different, other customers, different customers. Yeah. Um, and of course what was awarded didn't have anything to do with the quote unquote ideal solutions. So that was an, that was an important consideration in the GA. Yeah. Decision. When you, and I guess when you use the term kind ideal, it kind of, yeah, lets people down a, like, well, they really want that. Right. right? And if you don't do that, you would think, well, okay, well I shouldn't respond to this. Right. 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 Interesting. Um, so and I wanted to ask you just as a follow up, and we're going to segue to Civil False Claims Act. But you know, wh- you know, I, I think you know we've had these discussions 
you know, off air, just with the the issue of Civil False Claims Act, and does it apply to OTAs or not? I know you have some thoughts on that. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I think it's something people are not thinking about. But if um, if you think about, it, you know, the, the the and we're going to talk about implied certification versus false statements. But if you think about um, compliance with the statute, for example, um, the 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 OTA statute. Um, talks about some other provisions that weren't involved in the decision, but that, um, for example, um, there are provisions that are required to be complied with. So for an OTA, you've got to have um, either, you know, you've got to have a non-traditional defense contractor participating to a significant extent, or all significant participants have to be small businesses or um non-traditional defense contractors, or one-third of the total cost of the prototype project has to be paid by parties to the transaction other than the government, or there's a, also a process for a senior procurement executive to make an, uh, a, uh, a, a justification that exceptional circumstances justify the OTA. Um, so these criteria are really important. Now, some of them are very relevant to uh, entities that are in a consortium. Yes, um, and, and, you know, OTAs, a lot of OTAs are done with consortia. Um, but there have been some interesting discussions about these requirements. And so in the, in the context of your question, for example, um, companies would want to be um, careful about making representations about being a non-traditional defense contractor. What is participating to a significant extent in the prototype? project mean? I mean, it obviously means something. It's not defined. Um, with respect to the cost share, there's a lot of, we've, we've had discussions with folks. There are a lot of folks who don't want to use the cost share because there's you've got to account for it, right? I mean, yes. whose yes. money is it? Where did it go? How much was it? So they don't want to use it. Um, and so they, they want to use maybe the non-traditional defense contractor approach. And we've had some discussions with folks who say, well, Okay, if if you come in, um, if you're large company X or Y or Z, and you come in, we'll get a, sm- a small business or a non-traditional come in here re- review your proposal. That's enough, right? That's enough. Well, that might not be significant extent. Yeah. So yes. I think the criteria are important, and, and people need to be sensitive to the fact that if you make a false statement in connection with one of these transactions, that's still a false statement involving the expenditure of government funds. And I just don't, I just don't see this on anybody's radar screen. Um, it's, Except it's, for the Relators Council, perhaps, uh, well, down the road. <laughs> perhaps, and, and I suspect there are people out there who are thinking about it. But um, we've actually heard people say, oh, we don't have to worry about false claims with OTAs. Because they're not FAR contracts. No, you know, the, not, the, the statute's not, the statute, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right, it's the statute, there's statutory requirements, and companies are making representations about their participation, who they are, what they've contributed, and, you know, the, an overt, you know, a false, a false statement that meets the criteria of the False Claims Act would be an actionable item under the False Claims Act. So folks do want to be careful. Just because it's not a procurement contract doesn't mean that there aren't serious compliance responsibilities under right. OTAs. Well, yes, March. So let's we're, let's continue this discussion of the Civil False Claims Act. And just, you know, I know there's been some recent cases and I guess a Gilead case and 
materiality, and you mentioned implied certification. Can you talk a little bit about where we are, what yeah, the state so of play is? Sort of to change the subject from OTAs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it's but <laughs> it's relevant. Yeah, it's, it's relevant. definitely relevant. It's relevant to anybody who who takes the government's money, right? So and makes promises or makes promises yeah. to the government yeah. um, or makes commitments. So just just to back up a little bit, um, under the False Claims Act, you know, a, a claim. Uh, can be to, to the government can be a claim or an invoice or a statement can be a violation because it's either a false statement or it's an implied false statement, right? So right. the the action in the law has been about implied certification or implied false false statements. But um, uh, I, I, since I knew I was going to talk about this, I didn't want to lose with the OTA context the, the actuality of actual false statement, right? Because right. people could make one of those. But the, the 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 interesting sort of False Claims Act developments have all had to do with the, the out, outfall of really the Universal Health Services v. Escobar Supreme Court decision in 2016, which basically buttressed the False Claims Act's materiality requirement, but also um, the thing that got people's attention is it upheld the implied certification theory of liability under the False Claims Act. So it upheld implied li- certification liability theory, and then it, it also buttressed the materiality requirement. And so we've got litigation in every, uh, I think virtually, virtually, maybe not every, but virtually every um, every circuit, circuit. Mm-hmm. and uh, on what what's implied certification, where does materiality fit? And in the past two years, nine circuit courts of appeals have considered the Escobar materiality standard. And, and there's a growing consensus. And this is, the, this is, I think there's actually potentially good news for government contractors in here, which is why I wanted to talk about it. The, the potentially good news is that there's a growing consensus that if the government has notice of the defendant's alleged misconduct, that the conduct of the agency then in continuing to pay um, or in pursuing or declining to pursue remedial action against the defendant is, and I'm going to use the Supreme Court's words here, a very important consideration, very important being the Supreme Court's words, in determining whether the misconduct's material under the FCA. So when you've got a, a false a false statement or implied false statement, um, you know, it wasn't material in the context of the decision of the agency to do something right. Right. Um, they considered that, it and continued They considered to, it and they did whatever they did, right? They, right. Either, they either cared so about it or they didn't. Yeah, it's, uh, I know I don't want to interrupt your thought because it's great stuff, but it just doesn't that seem to me when you describe that, I just think about the old-fashioned contracts disputes, right? And there's some issue with regard to the contract um, that you're trying to resolve or whatever, but the contract continues. Is it in some sense sort of getting back to a rational approach to that, or am I going too far with Probably that? too soon to say uh, okay, that. Okay, too soon, okay. <laughs> but, you know, the, that the reason I wanted to talk about sort of the, the good news here is I, I think really by what the courts have been doing slowly, and there's this important Gilead case we should talk about for a second, is by affirming and broadening the application of implied cert, the court expanded the scope of professional or, or potential liability. But then they said to offset that, um, the court really, Supreme Court really emphasized strict enforcement of the materiality requirement, which the court itself characterized as rigorous. And and the important thing about the Supreme Court's opinion is that this approach to materiality encourages 
litigants, defendants, uh, defendants in particular, to scrutinize agency decision-making by focusing attention on how the agency actually reacted when they learned about the alleged noncompliance or how they've treated similar claims in the past. So if you think about government contractors have maybe different relationships with their customers than some other companies have with other regulatory agencies. But what does this mean for contractors? Contractors have regular communications with their customers. You talk to them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you talk about how's the contract going? You know, is how's performance going in this aspect? How's performance going in that aspect? So if if your customer knows what you're doing and you disclose if you have a disagreement, can't do it this way. You know, you want me to do X. I can't, I can do X plus two, but I can't do X. If you disclose any discrepancies and or violations, if you want to consider it a violation and the government keeps paying what the Supreme court says is that's strong evidence that the discrepancy or the violation was not material to the government. Right. Right. So the key here is disclosure. And I'm going to just give you an example. Let's say so what, when we come go back, ahead. you can give that example, okay. Marsha. We're already up on the break. Okay. My uh, my guest today is Marsha Madsen. She's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. And when we come back, you can you know, give your example okay. with regard to the disclosure and materiality. Uh, and folks, you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Marsha Manson. She's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. And uh, we have been talking for the last segment or so about the Civil False Claims Act and you know where we are in terms of the standards, the case law, uh, that sort of thing. And I know, Marsha, we're talking about materiality um, in the last segment, and you had wanted to talk about the importance of disclosure. Right. So I think where we left off, we I was explaining that, you know, if the government knows what you're doing and continues to pay, as the Supreme Court said, that's very important uh, in terms of the materiality determination. And I probably should add, a lot of these cases are going, I mean, going off on motions to dismiss early. And so that materiality determination is is the focus of a lot of litigation right now and, and early dismissals. But um, I wanted to use an example, and we were, we were talking about disclosure. So if if you're a if you're a contractor, um, and you you got an agreement, you got a contract with the government, and you're supposed to be doing a particular thing, and let's pick we were talking about this at the break. Let's let's pick your labor category. You know, we've got all these services contracts. They've got labor categories. They're defined in a particular way, and the government wants person X, and person X doesn't quite fit the labor category right. They're almost, but not quite. And there's been litigation in false claims act cases about you know. Absolutely. Uh, false statements about labor categories. So, right. um, uh, you know, you know the person doesn't fit. You know the government wants them. So, you know, what do you do, right? Um, if, the, if, if the government says there's this requirement and it's in your contract and you can't quite meet it, um, do you sit silent and just don't meet it? Um, or do you tell them, look, I can't do X, but I can do X plus one, so I can get you this guy, but you're going to have to change the contract. Um, or at a minimum, you're putting them on notice that you are not producing that person, right? And you're not producing the person with the qualifications that are specified in the contract so that you're not misleading them about who they're getting. Um, 
if the what the what the Supreme Court's decision says, if the government knows your position and they know that you're not complying with the contract and they still pay you, then in terms of a false claim and whether it's mature your your noncompliance is material, that knowledge is quote unquote very important. Um, and what I wanted to emphasize is this probably requires contractors to pay a little closer attention to the requirements in their contract so that if, you know, you know what you're doing, you know what you're performing, um, the the place thing that's lo- likely to cause you a problem as a contractor is if you're not complying with your contract and the customer doesn't know it. Then the customer is going to say, if if there's if there's a false claim, that um, you misled them. Right. So, but if you've told them, right. and they know, and you know, gosh, if you tell them, you might actually agree on a change. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but if but if you tell them and they know, then you've got a defense that they knew and they paid you, and they didn't think at the time it mattered. Right, and you tell them. In writing, in some in some manner or form, so there's evidence right. of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't. We wouldn't want to be having an argument yeah. about an oral discussion. Right. That like be, he said, she said. Kind that of would thing. be un, that yeah. would be unfortunate. Right. Yeah. Um, it seems common sense to me. I mean, I you know, from the perspective of you're disclosing, you're communicating to you know the person you're performing for in terms of the contract, and if, if by continuing to pay with that knowledge. They're essentially saying by their actions, actions speak louder than words, that that's okay. Yeah, if, they're, if they're informed. Yeah. I, th- I think the challenge for comp- for contractors, for companies is, look, these are big contracts. They have lots of terms and conditions. Yeah. In them. So, I mean, you have to be vigilant about your performance and about understanding what's in your contract. Right. So it's Contracts so it's, 101, the basics. The Understand basics. what you've signed up and for. What would you sign up for and are you doing it? And if you're not doing it, you need to talk to your customer about it. You know, yeah. this isn't this isn't revelatory. In, no, in, it's in not rocket space. science. Right. Although you may be, con- con- <laughs> be contracting for rockets. rocket science, right? <laughs> so just, just as a, you know, just to give you a, a feel for where this is headed, I mean, at this point, six circuits. So the first circuit, the third circuit, the fifth circuit, the seventh circuit, the eighth circuit, the ninth circuit have applied Escobar materiality in granting defendants pretrial motions. And three of them, the first, the third, and the fourth, have done so on a motion to dismiss. So it, it means if you're involved in this litigation, you've got a path to dismissal potentially. Now, we should talk about the Ninth Circuit for, sure, for a please. minute. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the coalition filed an amicus brief um, in a petition for certiorari by Gilead, by Gilead um, in, in their case, which is the, the Ninth Circuit's the out liar here. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, right. So in in the Gilead case, um, Gilead's obviously a pharmaceutical company. They had uh, developed um, and had had approved by the FDA an HIV medication. And um, probably around the 2006 or so time frame, they um, began, there's an active ingredient in the medication that I couldn't possibly pronounce, but um, they began, that ingredient had been sourced domestically, and they began sourcing it from China. Um, the relator says, uh-oh, you didn't tell the FDA, right? That's, that's the relator's claim in a nutshell. And um, what Gilead did was source active ingredient from China, 
um, later, a few couple of years later, actually applied for approval of this source from the FDA, and a couple of years after that, the FDA approved it. At no time did the FDA withdraw its approval of the drug. Um, the drugs were sold on government programs. They were sold, um, they were used by Medicare, Medicaid, the VA on government, government health care programs. So the, the question that, that um, the, Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit said in terms of the materiality determination that there are too many facts here. It's actually not clear whether the government knew and agreed and, and this, this case can go to trial to determine, you know, can move beyond the motion to dismiss stage to determine or to discovery, which is what I really should have said, not trial, can move to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And so this whole issue about what the government knew and when can be probed. Um, and the petition for cert was filed months ago at this point. Yes. Uh, you all filed your amicus brief, um, talked about some of the issues we've been talking about in materiality. And um, uh, before the court adjourned for the summer, Supreme Court adjourned for the summer, they asked for the Solicitor General's views um, on, on the issues. So we don't know whether the Supreme Court's going to take this case up or not. But the Ninth Circuit is out of step with right. with the other circuits. Um, so the, the question, you can see it, is pretty starkly posed. Um, essentially, when the FDA approved use of this alternative source, they, you know, some people might say ratified yes. the fact that this source had been used. And they, and never but they also with, didn't withdraw. And they didn't withdraw their approval. Right. So there's the question posed, posed pretty starkly. Yeah, it's pretty stark. The yeah. um, again for government contractors, um, you know the the point here, and and this is actually I'm going to do a little plug here for our ABA book on the False Claims Act for government contractors. But Absolutely, we, we, I have a copy of that. We've Very written about good. written yeah. about this topic, but I think the the news in here, and I'm not sure people are focused on it, which is why I wanted to talk about is if you're managing your contract and you are disclosing and the government is paying you the the supreme court's decision in escobar give you a good defense to a false claim and that's really the point of this discussion right and you know what marsha on that note we have to end the show so i want to thank my guest today marsha madsen partner at mayor brown llp and you've been listening to off the shelf on federal news radio 1500 a.m You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.